Well, uh, if we haven't met, my name is John Sherrill. I'm one of the pastors here at Fifth, and uh, we're concluding a sermon series today that has taken us through the book of Acts called The Gospel in Motion. And as uh, Pastor Sam already mentioned, Crystal, the boys, and I head off on sabbatical. This Thursday is June 1st, so we're out June, July, and August. We'll be back with you at the beginning of September. And very, very grateful to the church to offering that uh, to us. We look forward to it. Uh, Next week, uh, Dave Bast, Pastor Dave Bast, will be starting a six-week series uh, called Seeing God, Three Visions of God from the Old Testament and Three Visions of God from the New Testament. So Dave will be with us for the next six weeks. But today we've got this last message from the book of Acts uh, that has looked at highlights. We haven't gone through the entire book. As I've been saying throughout, Jesus uh, conducted his earthly ministry in person, and the details of that are recorded in the Gospel of Luke. And Luke, who was a doctor, wrote also the book of Acts. And it's, it's meant to be kind of a two-part uh, complete set, with Luke being um, what Jesus did in person on earth, and Acts being what Jesus continued to do on earth, but now through the Holy Spirit and by his followers. So that's really the focus of the book of Acts. The Holy Spirit put the gospel in motion to start on that first Pentecost long ago, and the Holy Spirit continues to put the gospel in motion today. Our part is, according to Paul's letter to the Ephesians, to go on being filled with the Spirit. And I loved what I heard one time, that that verb, go on being filled, is a continuing action, not a one-time event. Someone likened it to windshield wipers on your car in the rain. If they just wiped one time, that wouldn't be much help. They need to keep going. Keep going on being filled with the Spirit, says the Apostle Paul. And we can ask, said Jesus, please pour out your Spirit on us, and we do. Last week we looked at how God gave Peter a vision to help him grasp that the good news of Jesus was a message for all people everywhere, and that there are no second-class humans anywhere. Today we look at the story of Paul in Athens. This is probably one of my favorite passages of scripture because we can observe how Paul engaged the the people around him, the culture. And in that sense, it's uh, something of a template for mission for us in all we do as followers of Jesus. So let's listen to that story now. The word of the Lord from Acts 17, verse 16 through 34. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, may we know what, it, what this new teaching is that you are presenting? You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we would like to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who had lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. <laughs> Paul then stood up, and stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, 
I found an, I even found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship, and this is what I am going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth, and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he gives himself every, he gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man he made all, nation, all the nations, that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design or skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to, rep to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. And that, at, at that, Paul left the council. Some of the people became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysus, a member of the Areopagus, also a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. The word of the Lord. Thanks, John. One of the things that my family and I are doing on sabbatical is going on our mission trip, fifth mission trip to Mexico. And we get to hang with Sean on that mission trip. That's one of the things I'm most looking forward to. <laughs> That's going to be fun. Uh, so, in addition to being an incredible sermon that Paul preached to the Areopagus, uh, this, this whole past passage is something of a master class in Christian communication. And really, a master class in communication in general. This passage is a model for both private and public communication of the gospel to those new to the claims of Jesus. So let's, let's start with just a little background, as I often do. Imagine that. <laughs> let's look at uh, what Paul said. We'll, we'll do background, and then we'll look at what Paul said in his speech to the Areopagus. The passage we read starts with this verse. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. He was waiting. Waiting for what? Waiting for whom? If you read the couple chapters before this passage, you realize that Paul and Silas and Timothy had been in Thessalonica. There had been a big brouhaha there, so they left for Berea, the famous Bereans who were so faithful in searching the scriptures to see if what someone was teaching matched up with the scriptures. So Paul and Silas and Timothy were in Berea for a bit, but the troublemakers from Thessalonica came to Berea, caused more trouble, so Paul had to flee for the coast. Specifically, he went to Athens. Silas and Timothy stayed behind, so he was waiting for them. So Paul found himself in Athens waiting for his colleagues. Now, Athens had quite a reputation. It, it had been one of the foremost cities in the world, the foremost Greek city-state since the 5th century BC. By Paul's time, it had been incorporated into the Roman Empire, but it maintained a lot of its independence. It was a free city, and in the Roman Empire was unquestionably the intellectual capital of the whole empire. Imagine like all the Ivy League schools all glommed into one and put in one city. That was Athens. Everybody thinking, uh, ideas pressing here and there, trying to, trying to, well, 
all they did was talk about and think about the latest ideas, right, as the, as the scripture said. Its architecture was beautiful, also known around the world. So when Paul showed up in town, this from John Stott, first and foremost, what he saw was neither the beauty nor brilliance of the city, but its idolatry. Paul saw this and it caused him to feel something. See, Paul saw the idolatry and felt greatly distressed, the passage says. He saw that the city was full of idols. The, the word in the original language was kadaidilos, uh, and this word is one that appears to be made up. It's, it's found nowhere else in scripture, and it's never been found anywhere else in Greek literature. So you have to ask, well, what, what was this, this word that Paul seems to just have grasped out of the air or created for this circumstance? Kada, the, the prefix, refers to luxurious growth or flourishing, that also according to John Stott. And idolos, of course, is idols, uh, you know, objects to which devotion is directed. So when you put the two together, you get a thriving ecosystem of idolatry or my, my personal translation of it, what worked for me in my head was an Amazon rainforest of idols. Um, we're supposed to have of idols on that too. So, but that idea, just lush, flourishing rainforest of idolatry. So easy for that stuff to grow in this city. That's the idea. So that's what, that's what Paul saw, and he was greatly distressed. The original word there is a paroxino, means anger, grief, or indignation. According to one commentator, John Stott again, the original language uh, referred to a, a medical event, a seizure or epileptic fit. It's like, ugh, everything in you kind of seized up. So Paul was provoked by idolatry and provoked to anger, grief, and indignation, just as God himself and for the same reason, namely the honor and glory of his name. So Paul saw the idolatry, was greatly distressed. Everything in him reacted negatively against this. So he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. So, he did something. He saw a city full of idols. He felt greatly distressed. So, he did something. Now, I don't know about you. It would have been so easy to flee from Berea, go to this famous town of Athens and think, wow, Athens. I've always wanted to see this place. Always heard of it, never been. Let's check this thing out. Paul could easily have killed the time waiting for Silas and Timothy by exploring the city, seeing the sights, trying the food, exploring the market, checking out the harbor. There was a lot to see. It was famous around the world. But Paul was a missionary. He had a message to share. You and I are missionaries if we are in Christ not just the people who get paid to be missionaries, right? It's every single follower of Jesus. And we have a message to share. So he started talking about Jesus to anyone who would listen. Not just in the synagogues. He went there, the scripture says very clearly. 
He went there, but he also engaged in the public marketplace. Now, now think of a marketplace back in Jesus' day, the hustle and bustle. I mean, this is, this is kind of classic street preacher mode. Right? Paul's engaging people out in public, just asking questions, kind of getting the conversation going. And it was one of those conversations that led him to be invited to a meeting of the city council of Athens, which met at the Areopagus. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, may we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting? You're bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we would like to know what they mean. And again, all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. I hope somebody was making some food at some point. But The Areopagus was the meeting place of the city council of Athens. It was just outside the city, up on a hill, Uh, The word Areopagus actually means Ares rock, Ares the Greek god, Uh, so it's possessive, Ares rock, the rock belonging to Ares. In Roman mythology, Ares is Mars, so this is the original Mars Hill. That's how Mars Hill got its name. And it was was known as the, the place where truth was sought. Ideas were debated. Every thought came into the mix and was discussed in depth and teased out and tested to see if it would hold water. And in this sense, the Athenians' worst nightmare was to be ignorant of something. Because this is the best and brightest. At least in their minds they were. (laughs) There were really bright people in other parts of the world too, of course. But this is where these ideas were discussed. And and truth emerged in this discussion from from a human perspective. So the rulers of Athens invited Paul to speak because he had presented some new ideas. Here's what he said. People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship, and this is what I am going to proclaim to you. You feel the trigger, right? You are ignorant. (gasps) And this, this is where it gets really good, right? Do you see what Paul did here? He toured the city. Like any good Jewish person, he was offended to the depth of his being by the idolatry of the city, and that only amplified now that he knew Christ and had had a personal encounter with the living Jesus, and and he's torn to his heart like all of this, everything going on in the city is pointing the wrong way. And there's one thing, you know, compassion for the people who are following those things, that's a good motivation for wanting to share. Obedience to the Great Commission, that's another great uh, a, a reason to want to share with these folks. But, but at his heart was, God is not receiving the glory due to his name, the one worthy of our worship and allegiance is not named or mentioned at all here. And it, and it got him in his heart. But when he spoke to the Areopagus, Did those feelings come through at all? 
Not a bit. Rather, he compliments them. Did you catch that? I I see that in every way, you are very religious. That wasn't sarcasm. That's intentional use of language and posture to build commonality with your hearers. He's a smart communicator. He went on to compliment them on their awareness that all their temples and religious options might inadvertently have left some deity out. So they even chose to create an altar to an unknown God. If there's anybody out there somewhere that we left out, we want to remember you too. Inherently admitting they might not know everything and there might be room to grow. And this is a model for us as we share our faith. Look, look, look more closely at what Paul did and what he didn't do. What Paul did could be summarized as affirm and fulfill. Paul looked for anything he could affirm in the Athenian approach to spiritual things. He affirmed their understanding that there had to be something beyond themselves as evidenced by the spiritual buffet of options in their city. He affirmed their acknowledgement that they might not know everything as evidenced by that altar to an unknown God. Then he went on to fulfill their current understanding with the message of Jesus and all he's done for us. Affirm and fulfill. That's what he did. What he didn't do could be summarized as challenge and replace. Right? He could have started his speech to the Areopagus in this way. Look, you guys have got this entire thing completely wrong. For being so smart, you're missing what is glaringly obvious to any human being with a brain. There must be a creator God who made all things. Otherwise, how in the world could everything in the universe hold together and function the way it does? Let me tell you what's up. Big difference, right? Huge difference in in approach. The second way, challenge and replace, might feel better to those of us who prefer candor and very direct head-on communication. Uh, But according to some research, that only accounts for 6% of the population. So if you're shooting for the 6%, a mentor of mine said this to me during a Zoom coaching call. You can't bring challenge without invitation. And you can't get change without challenge. That has just stuck with me. It's so true. Before any challenge is offered, we must invite relationship, build relational equity with others. And from that starting point, from some place of relational equity, then we must avoid the ditches on both sides of the road, right? One is that uh, we never bring any challenge at all. It's all affirmation all the time. And on the other side, it's all challenge all the time with not enough invitation to keep people engaged. There's a middle way, invitation and challenge. And one of the keys in finding this middle way down that road is the way we choose to use language. And this is a much longer conversation, but today let's just think about pronouns. The way Paul used language was masterful. He understood the profound importance of pronouns. And this is a model for us as well. He used second person pronouns, you and your, to affirm the Athenians and then bring a bit of challenge. And he used first person to build relationship with them. After the, the 
uh, uh, affirmation, the building relationship, the, the, the invitation, Paul went back to building a positive stance with his hearers by switching to first-person pronouns and by using cultural handles to which they could relate. You see, second-person pronouns separate the one speaking from those listening. If I say you, right, if I say you, linguistically, I've drawn a line between you and me. And I'm here, and you're on the other side of that line. We're not in the same place. And you felt, we've all felt the force of this. Uh, you know what it feels like to be on the receiving end of maybe a preacher or another person speaking who continually says, well, you, 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 you. And pretty soon you're feeling like, man, I, I feel like I went 15 rounds with Tyson here. What's the deal? I'm just, I'm just getting pummeled. First person pronouns include the one speaking with those being addressed. Us, we, drawn a big circle, and we're all together in this thing. Uh, if you haven't noticed this about my preaching, I think very intentionally about the difference between second person and first person pronouns. And I lean first person, but occasionally choose second to bring a little more challenge, right? I mean, this is, this is a speaking technique, it's just a skill. Here, here's what I mean by the pronoun thing. Look at the text. Look what Paul did. I've added the, the highlighted portions uh, in yellow there that you can see. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship. And this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. So you can see verse 22 is all affirmation, right? You are very religious. The affirmation belongs entirely to them. So he's using second person, drawing a line between him and them and saying, hey, the kudos belong entirely to you. I'm not trying to steal some of your kudos. You're doing a great job in understanding that we need to worship something. And then the challenge you are ignorant of the very thing you worship. Interesting. How can you be ignorant of something you're worshiping? Do you see what he's doing there? He's blending the affirmation and the challenge together. He's not calling them ignorant. So it's a softer thing in the original language than it feels to us in, in the English. But it's definitely challenge. And then he says, I'm going to proclaim this to you. So affirmation belonged completely to them. The challenge was theirs to engage. And then he switches mostly to first-person pronouns. Look at, look at this. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as some of your own poets have said. That's affirming the wisdom of their poets, right? He's building commonality. We are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, one big circle, all of us are in it, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere, really big circle, to repent. Meaning, biblically, to change their thinking. See, Paul is consciously connecting with his audience to build, to build common ground with them. Paul quotes their poets 
and their philosophers who had influenced their thinking. At, at this time in the ancient world, the idea of monotheism was creeping its way into the cultural dialogue, and the Athenians were at the forefront there. Uh, we are his offspring. That was one of their poets. Kind of starting to tease out this idea that maybe, maybe there is one creator God who, who made everything. Paul lifts that verse from one of their poems, applies it in his sermon, and then includes himself in the conversation with them to say, there really is one creator God. The Greeks gave the world the gift of democracy. If you read Paul's words in that light, he's playing right into the, into the wheelhouse of the values that undergirded the original expression of democracy. This, this, is, a, this is masterful, right? He is a communication ninja. It is unbelievable. Paul used their voices, their influence, their language because he was there to help them change. Now, you can't get change without challenge, but he's aiming at challenge that will actually happen, will actually bring change. He's not aiming at challenge that will make him feel better because he put them in their place. He's in this for them. I want to suggest that each of us can be in every single human interaction we have with another person for that person. We can be in it for them. And I think a big part of Pentecost is God empowering the church to do just that, to be in our interactions with other people for them. It's not, that's not that we never bring any challenge. That's part of the equation, a big part of it. But we're definitely not in it to make ourselves feel better. See, to, to do this well, Paul dug deep. He dug deep to find something to affirm about a polytheistic, godless, immoral culture. He had to dig deep. And he did that. He found a couple things so that he might gain a hearing and be able to proclaim Jesus as the world's only savior, who is exactly who Jesus is, the world's only savior. Now, not all of us are communication ninjas like Paul, but we can all work on speaking in ways that benefit others over venting our own feelings. Right? We can all work on building common ground with others through the way we speak. We can do that with greater intentionality and purpose. We can all work on calibrating invitation and challenge. We all have a natural bent. Some of us tend to be too inviting and some, some of us tend to be too challenging. You know, self-assess, where are you at? What's your growing edge? How do you need to calibrate that a little better? Look at how Jesus did it. He was a master of that. And we're pursuing a Jesus-shaped life, so we want to be more like Christ in that. See, these are skills to develop and hone, and, and they're worth the work for the reason that they will benefit people who have not yet heard of Jesus and embraced what he's done for us. Because that, what he's done is very real. So template for mission. You get the idea of this sermon, right? Like what Paul, what Paul showed us here is really a template for the way we might engage other people, both publicly and in, in private communication. Now, one, one last thing that struck me this week, it's from uh, this verse, verse 27 in our scripture. God, 
did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. I've been a follower of Jesus since about, uh, since 1992, and I, 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 providentially stumbled into the, the Reformed tradition here. I can tell you that story another time. But got involved in going to conferences, conferences and things. And one, one big leadership conference, I would regularly hear this phrase, you know, we're, we're, we're pursuing people who are far from God. And every time I heard that, I would just cringe. On, I, I'd kind of go, ugh, because of this verse. Right? Paul said here, he, meaning God, is not far from any one of us. You see, the gospel is not primarily about where we are in relation to God, but about where God is in relation to us. It's not, it's never, that some humans, like the religious ones, are closer to God, while other humans, like the irreligious ones, are farther from God. That's not the point. The point is that God has drawn near to us in Jesus. And that now, right now, God is not far from any one of us. I don't know how you're feeling today. You might be here feeling far from God. If you are, know this, God is not far from you. It's impossible for God to be far from us because of what he has done in Jesus. He has come near. Remember the very first words of Jesus' public ministry. The time has come The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. That that word there, the kingdom of God has come near, some translations say the kingdom of God is at hand. The Greek word means within arm's length. The kingdom of God is not across the parking lot. The kingdom of God is not on the other side of Grand Rapids. The kingdom of God is within arm's length of you. The kingdom of God has come near, that near. God has come close to us. So if you haven't, you can always change your thinking about God, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit. That's what the word repent means. And you can turn from whatever way it is that you're facing now and whatever it is that you're pursuing in this life with your primary allegiance. You can turn from that and to Jesus. And I invite you to do that now. I mean, for a lot of us, it's a coming back, right? Because we, made, we make this decision, but we got to do this every day in a way, right? We have to keep, that's what following Jesus actually means. But the initial time is very significant because as I experienced, it involves a laying down of your pride because the only prerequisite Jesus requires in coming to him is an admission of our need. 
and to admit your need, you have to agree with God that you can't fix yourself and that you need help from beyond yourself. So on this Pentecost Sunday, I invite you, by the Spirit's help, to follow Jesus. Would you pray with me? God, thank you for the Bible. Thank you for the way that you make yourself known to us, that you reveal yourself to us. We, as a body here and with your church around the world, admit fully and wholeheartedly that we cannot figure it out. We need you to show us, to come alongside. Thank you that you have come near to us in Jesus. Thank you that that's the true meaning of Christmas and now the true meaning of Pentecost, that you are with us. You are Emmanuel, God with us, in addition to all of your other marvelous titles. And Father, I I pray now that if there be anyone here today or potentially listening online or at some point in the future who has not met you personally, maybe knows a lot about you in their head, but has yet to interact with you and meet you and come to know you, I, I pray that you would pour out your spirit again right now and help us, help us turn to you and meet you You said that's possible, and we pray that you would help us in it. Father, where our thinking needs to change, would you show us? Where our obedience to you needs to grow, please guide us in that. We want to be like the wise builder, not the foolish one. The wise one heard what you said and put it into practice, or the foolish one just heard it. Help us, Lord Jesus, in following you. We love you. I thank you that you have said that your yoke is easy and your burden is light. Help us to live in your joy, Lord. We love you and we thank you in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Weekly at the bottom of the little sermon note sheet you have, kind of on the back side at the bottom, there are some questions there intended to be used for groups or or personal reflection or family conversation, however you'd like to use that. The last three questions are always the same. How's God getting your attention? What might the Lord be saying to you? And what are you going to do about it? I invite you to take just a few moments to consider those questions before we close.